Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. As they were doing that, I was looking at the jury and I was seeing a lot of confused looks. And I realized in that moment, they don't even know what he's trying to do. So in closing, I walked right up to him and I said, remember when Mr. Young um, was talking about COVID and life expectancy? I, I hate to tell you this, but the reason he was doing that was to try to drive down Diana's life expectancy drive down what she went through, drive down her pain, drive down her suffering. Why? Because they want you to think she's going to die sooner. And, and I, I kind of got some like, oh, like, because oh, like, I don't think like we we deal with that every day. Again, I don't think jurors know how sinister it can be. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, it's been a minute since we've been on. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, life happens, work happens. We appreciate everybody sticking with us. We haven't been able to post as many new episodes as we'd like to, but we finally have one today. Yes, yes, we have uh, have one today and have a great one today. Uh, This, I think this will be really good. And, um, and and I do want to let our listeners know that uh, we are actively trying to work on getting more pod, uh, you know, more episodes uh, worked on and put up. So hopefully, uh, through the end of this year and uh, and next year, we'll be we'll be uh, getting some new episodes out there. Yeah. So uh, so uh, also wanted to talk just for a minute with our uh, with our producer Raz, who's uh, who's on. Um, because Raz was telling us before, as many of our listeners know, Raz is in law school, uh, and, uh, I think he's missing con law right now. Maybe we shouldn't be putting that out if his professor's listening. Um, but, uh, but, but Raz, you were telling us that you're getting ready to, are you, you're starting or you're going to have mock trial next week? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be my final exam. Uh, and I have, I'm a partner in a case on the prosecution on a, uh, felony hit and run. So it should be a lot of fun. All right. How you feeling? I feel good. Uh, I've watched two other groups go, so I've learned from them. Um, and I've every every night I leave so excited because I can like put the things I've learned from you guys and your guests into practice. You know, yeah. so I'm pretty excited about that. Well, very Raz, good. Do you like to do you like to be the prosecution or the defense lawyer more? Uh, I think defense at this point. At this yeah. point, defense, but that, that might change in the future depending on how much I get paid. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I, I, I think I can. If you're talking prosecution, I'm guessing you're not going to get paid uh, a huge amount. But uh, right. But, yeah. um, right. but yeah, anyway. I'm excited about it. Um, there was one guest who talked about uh, just showing passion. So that's why I'm going to have to come out of my comfort zone and really get the jury to care about the yes. victim. So yeah, that's, yeah. What yeah. that's what I'm going to focus on. Yeah, with a with a, a felony hit and run. I mean, that's a, that's kind of like uh, you know some of our civil cases a little bit, and you get to talk about the victim and you know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's mm-hmm. uh, that, that's exciting. Yeah, and demonstratives. You guys talk a lot about demonstratives. So yes. I'm, well, I, I just spent fifty dollars at Office Depot. So <laughs> <laughs> well, we, so we win. Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, we love demonstratives and, uh, you know, I, and I've said this before, demonstratives to me, it, I mean, it, we get to do this throughout all of our cases, but demonstratives is where you, where you get to really try and be creative in, uh, in what we do and, and come up with new ideas on how you're going to get ideas, get things across to juries. Yeah. 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 So thank you. Guys. Well, that's awesome, Raz. Well, good yeah. luck. Break a leg. 
Yeah, I, I will let you know how it goes. Put put that sob in we jail. All right. Well, I think that's enough. Uh, we we need to, Yvonne, we need to get to our guests. We have a, a, a great guest today. Um, I first want to just go ahead and say uh, hello and, and welcome to the show to Mr. Tom Bosworth. Tom, how are you doing today? Great. How are you guys doing? We are doing great. And uh, and we've got an exciting case to talk about. Um, let me tell everybody a little bit about Tom before we get started. So Tom is uh, a founding partner of Bosworth Law in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, you can look him up at TomBosworthLaw.com. And just to be clear, Bosworth is B-O-S-W-O-R-T-H. So TomBosworthLaw.com. Uh, Tom is a, a fantastic uh, trial lawyer and, and an up-and-coming lawyer. Um, he was uh, he was named as a top 40 under 40 national trial lawyer, a super lawyer, rising star. He was at, at this is one of the cool ones. Uh, Philadelphia Style Magazine's power players. Uh, that's that's always good to be in there. And then uh, the Legal Intelligencer 2023 watch list. And uh, in 2022, uh, the case that we're going to talk about here, uh, Tom was named in the best of the bar as having one of the top 100 uh, verdicts in 2022. Um and uh, and that's the case we're going to be talking about to, uh, today. And then uh, and Tom, you can also find him on TikTok as Tommy the Lawyer. And uh, Tom has over two hundred thousand uh, followers. Uh, and and my my daughters understand TikTok. My wife understands TikTok. I still don't really know uh, how to how to use it. But uh, I love TikTok, and I I checked Tom out on TikTok, and he has tons of followers, tons of engagement. And Tom, I'm just curious, like, does it, have you noticed with that engagement, like, has it led to, you know, any sort of, um, you know, marketing or leads or case generation, or is it more just, you know, letting people know about uh, educating people about the kinds of cases that you work on and how the law works? Well, by the way, I don't even know how to use it either. I, I actually, (laughs) I swear my wife, we were on vacation like a year ago and she's like she's good with like technology she's like you should do like a tiktok video and i like had the app but i never used it and then um i did a video and like some people watched it and i was kind of shocked i never did it thinking it would turn into anything but i have gotten leads from it um people reach out i don't do like ads on the on there i kind of just do informational videos but coincidentally people end up um watching a video or something and reaching out um, so that's been interesting, but it's, um, yeah, it's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always changing. The algorithm's always changing. There's always, I had watched, I had read your bio, watched some of your videos. And so then TikTok's like, oh, she must want to watch videos by lawyers, which is funny. Cause like TikTok is usually my escape from work. Right. So I'm like, please no, please no. You're like, get out yeah. of here. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, very cool. It is very cool. Well, uh, Tom, let's tell everybody a little bit about the case that we're here to talk about. So the name of the case is Diana Melendez versus uh, Dr. G. Mo. And uh, there was another doctor involved, and that's Dr. D. Angel Antonio. I know, I think I probably screwed that up. But uh, but this is, a, as everybody might guess, is a medical malpractice uh, case. And it was tried in September of last year, September 2022. 
and the result of the case was a $19,665,312 verdict uh, for essentially a failure uh, by Dr. Mo. Uh, in, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but the jury found Dr. Mo responsible, uh, but did not fi find Dr. Uh, D.N. Angel Antonio responsible. Um, and, and, and also put uh, a small percentage on, uh, on Miss Melendez. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit, the, uh, the comparative fault aspect of it. Um, but that put 6% on her, uh, is, is, is what I saw, but it was a failure to diagnose a spinal cord lesion or as I thought it was funny in the uh, defense's opening, they made sure to, to say that it was a spinal dural art arteriovenous fistula, not a mass not a malformation, a fistula. And uh, I'm not sure what difference that made, but uh, they wanted to make sure they were saying it uh, absolutely correct. Uh, but uh, but essentially what what, it, what the fistula does, I believe, is it uh, puts a mass against the spinal cord uh, and over time um, causes the uh, spinal cord to basically lose blood, lose oxygen, uh, which leads, uh, th this is essentially over a five-year period, uh, leads to a partial paralysis where Miss Melendez lost uh, um, the ability to control her bladder, lost the ability to control her um, her bowels, uh, can still walk, but cannot walk uh, normal is the way we'd say it. Um, you know, and just and and has just multiple multiple problems with her legs to the point that she lost her job, uh, where she was working at uh, I think the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, um, and um, and just completely uh, uh, changed and affected her life in a in a in a terrible way, and essentially, if I understand the case, Tom, um, it starting back in two thousand twelve. Um, she first goes in to see Dr. Mo, which was her primary care physician, uh, and had complained of back pain with without injury. Uh, so just sort of, uh, um, I think it was uh, thoracic back pain or mid back pain, and then with tingling that uh, radiated it around to the rib cage. Uh, he did this, uh, what everybody understands is a reflex test uh, and to both the knees and the ankles. And I'll have to have you explain this, but essentially they came out with what was on both sides, left and right, as a plus four or four, four plus, sorry. Uh, and then ankle, the ankles came out as a four plus on both sides. And on this scale, which runs zero to four, two is normal and two is good. Zero is bad and four is bad. Um and uh, and and he documented that it was a four plus uh, each time, and then part of the case was that he claimed that on each of those occasions he made a mistake when he meant two plus he instead clicked four plus, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, uh, made the same mistake over and over. Uh, also, different visits. Yes, yeah, and then uh, yes, and then he also uh, on a I think on a different visit. Um, had said that she was uh, positive for neurological weakness, uh, but then tried to claim that that was really just generalized weakness. And somehow because of the, the uh, medical software, it got put under neurological instead of under um, instead of instead of under just generalized. Uh, he also wrote down a sensory deficit at the L5 dermatome, which is the nerve pathway. And, and essentially all of these things, there was numbness, tingling, muscular pain, 
uh, which are all signs of damage happening to the spine uh, that went unnoticed, uh, never did a CT, never did an MRI, never did an X-ray, uh, never sent to a neurologist. She eventually went on her own. Uh, and essentially after five years of going through this, she gets to a neurologist who does an MRI, uh, recognizes the AVM or this or or the uh, whether it's a fissus or fistula or a mass, it's uh, you know, something that's growing, putting pressure on the spine. Um, recognizes it, but by that time uh, the damage had been done, and um, you know even though she's gone through multiple surgeries, still hasn't been able to return to any any type of normal living. Um, I, I know I sort of sped through a lot of information there, Tom, and probably missed a lot of information. But but overall, that was the uh, the the gist of the case. Is that right? Yeah, that that's about right. Yep. Um, so you you know one of the things that I noticed in, in and this is just you know we when we do these medical malpractice cases, you know medical malpractice cases are hard. Um, generally, uh, doctors you know, they, they come across as likable and they come across as trying to do their best. Um, you know, and so a lot of times they'll get the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I even saw in your opening, you said you, you made sure to mention that both of the doctors were, were nice, likable people. And that wasn't really what the case is about. Um, but, um, but, but the, the, because this happened over five years, and and as far as I could tell, the visits, some of them are a little bit spread out. So I'm yeah. wondering when you were looking at that case uh, and, and, and getting it ready, you know, how you how you and you know, obviously you did a great job of taking it head on. But, you know, the fact that you've got sort of these spread out visits over this period and then which allowed the defense to some extent put some blame on her by not, you know, coming back to the doctor enough, not going to a neurologist, not that, that was essentially the argument. So, so talk, uh, and, and feel free to say whatever you want about any other part of the trial, but I, I that's one thing that sort of just, uh, I noted right off the top is when, you know, when you've got a, a client who, you know, maybe has some gaps in treatment and things like that, that can present a problem from putting together a, a case. So, so talk about that and how you, uh, how you went about addressing it. Yeah, I mean that that was a big part of the case, um, like obviously, and and a big part of the defense. And and one of the things that I identified early on, um, by the way, Diana was my first case I was ever assigned as a lawyer. Oh wow! Like in my <laughs> like, I did a clerkship for one year, and I was in my late twenties. Uh, I've aged since now. I have two little kids, so that's that's you know. But uh, right. I, I I met her at a Starbucks. I didn't know what I was doing. And she was my first assigned case. But but I remember looking at the medical records and then thinking to myself, well, she told me or, or you know, she, according to her, she was complaining about all these other things, you know, every visit. But she was getting blown off by the doctor. And, you know, a lot of the other lawyers at, at, at worked at a different firm then were kind of poo pooing the case because there were these, quote unquote, gaps in treatment. But But I always viewed it as as the doctor's problem, not hers, because she was a credible person. Um, she was she was really nice, really believable. And, you know, uh, one thing I've learned through um, doing a lot of medical cases is that it's not uncommon that women's complaints get dismissed and downplayed and rationalized all the time by healthcare providers. And I think that any, uh, I think most women know that because they're women. <laughs> 
And they're there when it happens, right? And so I wasn't thrilled that there were those gaps, but I there was a way to explain to the jury, um, and I don't remember what I said exactly in opening, but something to the effect of, uh, I think, you know, one of the things you'll learn through this trial is that um, that they, that complaints sometimes get downplayed, dismissed, and, and rationalized, and that's what happened to Diana Melendez. And when she took the stand, geez, she they believed her. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it um, the doctor didn't help himself at all. I mean, the the yeah. four plus thing was a spectacle in the courtroom because you were talking about demonstratives earlier, and I I called him on cross as my first witness because. I mean, just he just had a story for everything. It was like everything bad in the record was just some fantastical made-up thing, like a software glitch or the click error. And I remember bringing the the old easel out, which uh, I like easels, but yeah. um, I brought the easel out and I did, you know, four boxes, and I did four different rows with four boxes to show, you know, the left patellar the right patellar, the right knee, the left ankle, and the right ankle, those four separate things. And I'm saying, so you're telling me, and I would circle two, you missed the two, you missed, you missed the three, with the, and you hit four, correct? And I, yes, and I did it for each of the four. And, and, and I think when the jury saw the, like, because I had them confirm that's what the computer screen looked like. And I don't think anyone could have possibly believed it after that just because it was like well how do you miss that bad <laughs> four right. times you yeah. missed you missed two and you don't even land on three you're at four and it just so happens that four plus reflexes are exactly what you would expect to see with somebody who has a spinal avm or a mass so you know he didn't need to defend the case in that way um but he did and i'm sure you both see that all the time where I've never done defense work, but I often say like there's an there's an easier way to defend this case. And sometimes the defense lawyers or the defendants, I think, drive the value up in our cases. But that's just my my two cents. Yeah. You know, one thing I thought you you said was really important there. And, you know, we talk about it all the time on this show is is you said that, you know, one of the reasons why you believed Diana is because when you met with her, she was uh, credible, nice and believable. And, um, you know, and if she was that way on the on the stand, um, you know, and, and I and I think and tell me if I'm wrong, but I thought you also had an admission from the doctor that sometimes he doesn't document everything because he's busy and um, which is just killer uh, yeah. because, you know, you're hoping that when you go in and talk to your doctor about what's going on with you, that they're paying attention, that they're writing everything down. Uh, and so if they you know, if they're not, that's, that's bad. So it, it really sounds like in this case, not only did your client come across as, as very believable and, and, and nice, but that the doctor, because of the reflex uh, test, because of the uh, medical software, uh, uh, you know, um, blip, uh, you know, almost tries to wipe away all of his medical records uh, by just saying, well, that's, you don't, don't believe any of what you see written down here. Um you know, and, yeah. and, and believe and only believe the, uh, uh, you know, what I'm telling you. So, yeah, that's yeah, um, I, a problem. I wanted to ask you, Tom, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Steve, but I wanted yeah. to ask, um, I saw that in your close. So Steve and I had your the opening and the closing transcript. We didn't have transcript of the whole trial, but um, I know that in your closing, you had done a lot with Dr. Moe's uh, 
deposition testimony, what he said in his deposition versus what he said at trial. And so I was curious in his cross, which it sounds like you, you led with him, um, you know, did you spend a lot of time kind of on impeachment with his deposition? And if so, you know, how did you do it? I wasn't sure if you had, it wasn't clear to me from the transcript, whether you had video or not, whether you were reading it in or or what the judge let you do with it. But I just think that's one of those practical pointers. That's really, it's so effective to get it right, but you've really got to be on it and ready to go with those clips or those excerpts when you are using them for impeachment. Yeah, he, um, he was impeached. I spent a ton of time with him. I crossed him over a day, which I don't tend, I don't love doing that. I don't like doing it. I like getting up, getting out because I don't want to waste time. But in his case, he just couldn't get out of his own way. And I must have impeached him 13, 14 times. And, um, and, and he was sort of the type of witness where you could just tell he, and I see this with doctors a lot, like they're not used to being questioned that questioned literally and questioned like, like, um, like someone's calling into question what they're saying. So I yeah. think that they suffer from a lot of times they suffer from the old, like, well, if I say it, it's true. Cause that, that might be Monday through Friday, how it goes for them. They walk in and tell the assistant, you know, whatever, but, um, sorry to answer your question. I, I impeached him just with the transcript on the screen. Uh, we had, I had a big jumbo screen. Uh, I had video, but I, I didn't use it. I like the transcript only because I can. I I like highlight, and there's no right or wrong. And I've I've you, you know, both been doing this longer than me. But I like highlighting the words, and I and I sort of just brought them through it very slowly. And I like I like the jury can read the words, and 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 sir, that's what that's what you said then, isn't it? And 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 now you're telling us something different, correct? And sometimes I would say. You know which one is true, and uh, it doesn't matter what he's right. What he's, yeah. So, um, it, yeah, he he was doing that a lot, and um, it it I think it uh, it hurt him a lot. All right, so Yvonne, it's always good to be prepared at trial, right? Right. And who can always help you be prepared and your best at trial? Without a doubt, legal technology services. That's right. And you can look them up at LegalTechService.com. That's LegalTech, T-E-C-H, service.com. And uh, and they are just fantastic at trial. Our firm has used them for every trial that we've been to. Uh, they're fantastic, always prepared, always helpful. Uh, and uh, you can say hello to Bob, Melanie, uh, Liz, or Patrick, or any of the other people in their team but uh, legaltechnologyservices.com. They can help you not only with your technology at trial, uh, they can help you with day in the life videos. They can help you with mediation uh, settlement videos. They can help you with demonstratives, even including, I one time had them build me a model of a panel that was, I think 12 feet long by 10 feet tall that had fallen on our client and shattered his leg. And they built one for me that I could use in the courtroom. So they're fantastic. Please go to Legal Technology Services, and that's LegalTechService.com. One of the uh, themes you had because of that for Dr. Mo and even some of the other witnesses was uh, the courtroom conversion. So uh, I, I, I like that, and you use that in your closing uh, throughout about how how many times they had a courtroom conversion that is now something 
different than what they were writing in the medical records. Uh, how'd you, how'd you come up with that theme and, uh, and how'd that come up, go over with the jury? Uh, I, I remember, I think they were in agreement. Um, but I just, it, it, it's, it struck me that I think jurors come into cases, obviously like with, they're, they're not these, they're not desensitized like we are to the litigation process. I think I, I don't, they're not desensitized to the fact that people lie a lot, even under oath that they make stuff up, that they exaggerate. And, you know, I grew up, nobody was a lawyer in my family. It wasn't like a thing that, I mean, my mom was a waitress. My dad was a cop. So I, I kind of, I go into everything with that perspective. And if the worst thing I can do is think about a trial, like a lawyer, in my opinion, but so I'm like looking at, well, you said this, but this is what it says in the record. And I think that's a really simple way to, to uh, show the jury, like, you know, pre-lawsuit, post-lawsuit, there's two different stories here. But, you know, at the time that he had to document in the record when he had no skin in the game, no lawsuit, no knowledge of a lawsuit, that's what he wrote then. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, that's not true anymore. I mean, that's just people don't like that, I don't think. And I think they are they 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 naturally think that you're being dishonest when 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 there's that gap. So yeah, well, and to circle back to something you said earlier about, you know, I never thought it as specifically women, although I think the statistics would probably pan that out. But when you go to the doctor and you complain and you're being in, ignored, a lot of times it's it it is not easy to go and speak to the doctor. It's not easy to talk about yourself and what you're going through. And for a lot of people, it's very expensive. It's very hard to even make that time to go and do it. And so to find out that you have done it or you're doing it and it's not getting documented or you're being told later that what in your rep, what's in your records is not true uh, is so like, I, you know, that's the kind of thing that like as just a regular person, as a patient, not as a lawyer, but as a patient, just makes you kind of irate to think about, you know, how hard it is to go to the doctor, how much there is this sort of frequently this feeling, whether it's real or not, like the that, you know, about the power dynamics and the level of education. And um, so it already kind of sucks to go in there and then to kind of feel like all your records are being discredited or, or you know, they don't tell the whole story. It's like, excuse me, that's exactly yeah. what they're supposed to do is yeah. tell the story. Well, there was one moment, sorry to jump in, but I, there was, no. made me think of something I had forgotten, but there was one moment when, when the doctor was, Dr. Mo was, was saying that, you know, I made this click error on the four plus reflexes. And then I realized the very next visit, which was back in 2012, I realized that was a mistake. I, I realized I was looking at the record. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember seeing the reflexes. Yeah. And the trials in 2022, so a decade earlier. And right. he's, I remember it like yesterday. And I remember like, seeing this and thinking that's wrong. It, it was supposed to be two. But I had a policy that Penn had produced about medical records that said it, it, you're required if you re, if you discover an error in the chart to do an addendum and correct it. And uh, I, I in his deposition, I had him I showed him that uh, I think I showed him that policy and I simply asked him if he, he was aware of it at the time. He said yes. And whether it, it was a requirement and he said yes. But at trial, he actually gave me the I, I brought him through that. And I said, and, and so you violated the policy. Is that right? 
He said, yes. And I said, so from 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, 2016, 17, 18, you know there's this error and you know that your job requires you to fix it and not once did you go into the computer to do it. Is that what we're to understand, sir? Yes. And in fact, it, you could you could have fixed it yesterday, couldn't you? Like I, I went through this, just how absurd it was that if he really made a, an error, it's like, well, you would have fixed it. And he couldn't yeah. really, couldn't say why he didn't. And what I said, yeah. to the jury, I think I said this to the jury, or at least I thought it in my head was, well, that's because that's what it was. It wasn't an error. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I'm just curious, Tom, because I so much about this case and reading about it reminds me of a lot of med mouths are hard. I think misdiagnosis and failure to diagnose med mouths are really hard sometimes from the just from the causation angle. But in Georgia in particular, you can also have a statute issue. And I'm just wondering how it works in Pennsylvania. You know, like basically every time she goes in and she's kind of sent home. Uh, or not referred to a neurologist or not basically given the advice that she should have been given for what her symptoms were displaying, you know, is your statute basically starting over every time that happens? Um, so it's, it's two years from the date of diagnosis. Um, oh, for, okay. From the date of the correct diagnosis. Or, or we have the discovery rule and I don't know if you have it in Georgia too. Yes. Um, so it showed two years from the date you knew or reasonably sh uh, should have known uh, that you were injured and that the injury was caused by the uh, negligent conduct of another. So we were able to, she was diagnosed in early 2017 and the case was put into suit uh, within two years of then. So, gotcha. um, so even though there was negligent conduct at the prior visits, because she hadn't been rendered a diagnosis, she didn't have any knowledge or a reason to know. Um, and they never raised it. And I, I, I thought they might, honestly, during the case, but they, they didn't. Um, but, yeah. 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 Well, you did. It seems like you did have that, that, um, I mean, she must've felt like it was groundhog day a little bit to just keep going in and talking about the same things and, you know, to not get the right advice. I mean, well, anyway. But yeah, yeah, so I mean, it's like it was a very compelling story and unfortunately a very familiar story. Um, One of the things that um, stuck out, I think, to, to me at least, was, you know, Dr. Moe admitted to me that at some point in time during this course of treatment, he was worried that she might have a spinal lesion or mass. And that wasn't documented anywhere, but um, I felt that that was really powerful because you know, when you're a doctor, you have that superior knowledge and with, with great power comes great responsibility, that type of thing. And it's like, I think anybody and their grandmother would want to know if you're in the doctor, if in the doctor's mind, they're thinking, well, that might be a mass in your spine. I mean, raise your hand if you'd like to know that. That's what the doctor's thinking. I think 100 out of 100 people would raise their hand. Yeah. And I don't think it, it flies when the doctor comes in and says, yeah, but... I don't think, yeah, but gets you out of that. Like, so he, right. it wasn't even a case of, um, it, 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 it sort of transformed from a, an oopsie daisy to like a, wait a minute, you actually, let me get this straight. You actually were thinking at the time that she could have a mass in her spine. 
And I mean, I, I think that's hard to come back from. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. When and it also, you know, begs the question: like, if if you if it's even in your thought process that it's that that's what she might have, and, and and you know, we all know from the differential diagnosis that you know, there's some things that are on there that are not a big problem. Then you have some things that are a big problem. Well, if there's a mass on the spine, we know that's a big problem. So why not just go get a MRI just to rule it out? You know, that, that way, then, you know, and we can move on and, and try and find out what else it is. So, I mean, ha, I mean, so it really, you know, plays into your, your theme when you're talking about uh, why, why, you know, he didn't get any scans. If you're thinking it, get a scan. Yeah. yeah. So, so I wanted to come back for, for one uh, second to the issue that, that you and Yvonne were speaking about, which was the, the this issue of of the that women, you know, in general, I, I think, you know, have trouble at doctor's office and just and, and I'll, I'll never forget because um, my wife was having an issue and I won't get into it, but she I remember going to the doctor with her and I remember her explaining to the doctor what was going on and then the doctor just completely wrote it off and basically told her it was in her mind. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's literally telling you her problem, you know, and we had to, you know, uh, so it's, I think it's absolutely true. I'm, I'm wondering if you, did you try to develop that theme and that thought process during voir dire and, and, and what was the response from the jury on that? I did not actually. I I I I did. It wasn't intentional. I just think I was. I knew I was going to bring it up in opening. I, I just wanted to um, plant the seed in the opening right. and and say to the jury, you know, what I thought would be sort of an unassailable thing, which is, you know, I think you'll learn from the evidence that it, it, it's no secret to anyone in this room that sometimes your complaints they're dismissed, downplayed. And rational and rationalize, and I, I, I had the institutional knowledge from having looked at so many potential med mal cases, just even ones I don't take, just to to hear story after story after story about this same pattern. What happened to your wife? You know, from so many different people. And again, it's not just women, like Yvonne said, but I I do see personally see it more with women, um, and so. I knew that I wasn't going to get anyone any balkers when I when I said that, and then the evidence bore it out, right? So yeah. um, I don't think it, but uh, there, there's there is like sort of a traditional med mal plaintiff lawyer like sort of antiquated view, if I might say, <laughs> that oh well, if it's not in the records, people get the heebie-jeebies about it. And I'm not saying that you can make up an entire case without record. right. But what I am saying is I don't think. People are so linear about that anymore. I think people understand that these things happen and that and that doctors are super busy and uh, things get kind of pushed um, off. So, you know, one thing I'm wondering if from a defense standpoint is some of the themes that I picked up from them were that they that she was showing signs of things that might be arthritis or something like that. And that, and that they were going down those roads. But it, it may you know, but to, to but to basically just dispute what's in the medical record, and then knowing the end of the story, which is she does actually have this mass on her spine. How, how did I, I, what was the defense uh, sort of? Th how how did they come at that about saying, oh yeah, well we, there's no reason we should have thought it was a mass on the spine, even though that's actually what it was. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, they pointed to the arthritis. They pointed to her. Uh, she was slightly overweight. And they tried to bring that up in like a, a non-rude way, which I'm not sure how you do that, but they, they still tried unsuccessfully. Uh, they brought up she had a vitamin D deficiency, uh, that, she, that she worked a lot. By the way, she worked for the same health system. Right. That was a defendant. And so, you know, she was a lab tech, meaning she was the person who, if you got your blood drawn or, God forbid, someone thought you had cancer and you had a biopsy, she was the real person running the blood and the tissue samples from building A to building B, making sure it got to the right lab. And she was a stellar employee and um, a really wonderful, wonderful employee. And I went through her employment records too, because um, one of the defenses in the case was she's not really disabled, even though they literally fired her for be for not being able to work, which I didn't say that that was inherently wrong because she could not legitimately work due to her disability. But then they hired, of course, an economist and a voc expert to, to, to write reports that really say she's not actually disabled. She's really actually okay. She really actually can work. But they were playing games with those experts during the case in chief. They wouldn't say whether they were going to call them or not. And then they would, you know, get up and have a fit every time I got into the fact that she was disabled because they were like, oh, that's not relevant. Or the fact that she lost her job as a result of her physical disability, that's not relevant. And they just and and when I, you know, kind of tried to bring it to a head with the judge at one point on a on a sidebar or on a recess, I'm like, judge, you know. Are they going to call these witnesses or not? Because this is my case. I have one chance to put my case on. They've, they've got three people ready to march in here and say she's not disabled. She she is disabled. Not only is she disabled, but the defendant said she's disabled. So right. that goes to their credibility and it goes to damages. And uh, and of course, the defense lawyer just was was uh, was just couldn't stop slithering in the grass. Because he just <laughs> wouldn't tell the judge one way or the other, like, no, we won't. Yes, we will. And then they didn't call anybody. So it just came in unrefuted. And I think they were smart not to do that because they would have gotten absolutely just hammered. Um, but at the same time, they they didn't know they didn't handle that well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that you said in your opening, I think. That you know, basically they might have somebody come in here and say she can still do a desk job or something. But just so you know, when they fired her, they didn't offer her a desk job or that kind of job. They just fired her. I thought that was so smart. So I'm kind of bummed that didn't pan out for you to be able to do more with it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they kept like freaking out every time we would get into that. But, you know, they never filed a motion in limine on it. Uh, they didn't object during the opening. Um, yeah. You know, they 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 totally missed it, or maybe they didn't. Whatever, but um, it was it was a, a powerful thing, I think. So, Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is, is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that 
digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I guess, you know, I'm still wrestling with it. She has this, uh, she has this condition that's caused her, you know, to have the, these problems and, and why and she lost her job and why i don't understand how it wouldn't be relevant uh that she's disabled i mean that seems like uh, basic damages yeah they they just didn't like the fact that it was coming out of their own mouth and right i spent geez i spent hours with defense experts like because she had also treated with pen neurologists and neurosurgeons and physical medics and doctors who weren't defendants but i was just putting records in front of them that go to how damaged and injured she was in front of the defense experts. And basically my whole cross for like three days was, and that's what the pen doctor said about it. Right. And I mean, you hear that like 74 times and then some lawyer, some lawyer from Penn gets up and they're like, well, actually none of that. It's it's just, yeah, they were, they were also in that same position I I was thinking about this when I was reading your closing that I think happens so often that it's just so it's just one of the times when I'm really relieved that I don't have to make these kinds of arguments because they have to argue or they were potentially in the position of having to argue that she can work, but also she's going to die sooner because of her condition. Um, You know, that whole decreased life expectancy argument. And so pay her less because she's not going to live as right. long. Does that ever go well? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, but let me ask you guys. Have you ever seen it like I mean, land where a jury's like, hey, that's a good point. She's going to croak soon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, please give us the discount discount for cutting her life expectancy down. You know, what's I mean, funny people about that? keep making it. Yeah. Well, they keep doing it. Yeah. I Well, to that point, about it, they crossed. You wouldn't have seen this, but. Their cross of my economist was short, and it was limited to like uh, it was about COVID, and, and it went it went something like this. Uh, do you agree with me that COVID nineteen was a big deal? Yeah, and 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 are you aware of any studies indicating that COVID is shortening people's life expectancies? Because I guess there's there's some some like speculative article that some doctor wrote, and my expert was like, yeah, there's some people that think that, but we don't really know that that's true or anything. And blah, blah, blah. But as they were doing that, I was looking at the jury and I was seeing a lot of 
quizzical, confused looks. And I realized in that moment, they don't even know what he's trying to do. Right. So, so in closing, I said, I said, and I walked right up to him and I said, remember when Mr. Young um, was talking about COVID and life expectancy? I, I hate to tell you this, but the reason he was doing that was to try to drive down Diana's life expectancy, drive down what she went through, drive down her pain, drive down her suffering. Why? Because they want you to think she's going to die sooner. And and I, I kind of got some like, oh, like, oh, yeah. like, because I don't think like we we deal with that every day. They don't know, like, again, I don't think jurors know how sinister it can be. I'm calling it sinister. Maybe that's a bit yeah. dramatic, but it, it it kind of is. And I don't think normal humans who aren't psychopaths <laughs> view life that way. I just yeah. don't think they do. I just don't. So yeah, so, it I, is a good it, it is a good point, though, like we something like a question like that gets asked and we know where it's going. But the jury is like, why is somebody at, why are they asking an economist about covid? You know, we should point out that for your verdict form in particular, there were and I don't know if this is the way Pennsylvania always says it. This is not we the way I've we really do it in Georgia. But there was a line for future medical expenses basically for each year for the jury to fill out. So that connection they didn't know it at the time, probably, because they hadn't seen the verdict form. But that connection between somebody's life expectancy and those damages is, was really crystal clear, made crystal clear by that verdict form. You know, even though they're instructed that way, I don't know that that connection is always made. But by the time you make that point to them and then they see the verdict form, I'm sure that was like a, oh, hell no, especially because almost everyone has had COVID now. So you're also... Like you're telling the jurors they're going to die sooner. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, not how I win them over, but. By the way, Diana got COVID during the trial. Oh, wow. She no. got COVID in the middle of the trial and she was sitting like four feet from the jury box and she came down with COVID. It was weird. It was like at the end of my case in chief. And, um, I'll never forget it. And, and the defense, the defense team was having a um, having a, a party. They were like, because they were like, oh, this is a well. They were like, judge, we need a mistrial. And the judge was like, well, I'm not going to necessarily do that. What I am going to do is I'm going to bring in each juror individually in the courtroom, and I'm going to pull them and question them as to whether they feel comfortable going on because she she has been very close to the jury the entire time. And um, there were some other health concerns, I think, from some of the jurors. So um, the fence was over there snickering, smiling. They they were sure that you know this jury, who by the way was they didn't they weren't a jury that looked happy to be there, um, which which I later found out was probably because I'm not saying I found out from the jury. I'm saying I found out from the result was probably because they didn't believe the doctor from the jump, and they had to sit there for two weeks. But but nevertheless. Mm -hmm. They, uh, each one of them came in one by one by one by one. And they're like, no, we'll stay. No, we'll stay. No, we'll stay. No, we'll stay. And I'm like, looking at my co-counsel, you know, it was a powerful moment because they were like, we're staying. Like she, she wasn't even allowed to be in the courtroom anymore. And they were really, they were really serious in how they were taking it. And I remember going up to the defense lawyer who's, more than twice my age, 
And I said, hey, uh, Jim, I said, I, I know I'm just doing this starting out, but I don't think they're hanging around to, uh, to zero her out. he he was like well maybe you might be right about that Tom you know but uh but yeah uh, he didn't make he didn't make the payment decision so yeah yeah exactly anyways yeah it was interesting so so did I hear right you in in Pennsylvania are you not allowed to talk to the jurors afterwards Uh, I'll be honest I don't know that there's a specific rule on it I think the judge in our case brought I think he brought all the counsel back and did like a little like thank you yeah. for coming, but you, you you're not really allowed to talk to him like beyond that. I don't think. Okay, I I was just wondering, you know, if if you got any feedback at all, and and if if you didn't, that's fine. But you know, of what they you know thought about the case, or what they um, you know, what they liked or what they didn't. Um, well, let, let me ask you this, you know, I, I noticed in your opening, you know, and it's always a great theme, which is, you know, accountability, responsibility, and the fact that the doctor's not taking responsibility, I mean, to the extent that he is denying what's in his medical records. Um, and so in, in, you know, I always like that theme. It, at the end of the day, they did put a little bit of negligence on on uh, Diana, only six percent, uh, so uh, a small amount. But I guess it, it sort of gives them that that release valve where they can say, "All right, let's put a little bit on Diana." But then you know we're mostly. Um, did you get any type of a sense on on um, you know first? I guess you know what why they were putting a little bit on her. And then a second is, uh, you know, I always like when there's a little bit of responsibility that the plaintiff can take, because then it allows you to ask the, it allows you to ask, you know, the jury, you know, listen to see if the defense is going to take any responsibility. Are they going to take even 1%, you know, and, you know, and then they never do. And so then you got, you know, at least your clients are willing to take a small percentage, you know, and they're not willing to take any. But um, so I know that was multiple questions there, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I get it. I, 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 I um, yeah, you might not have been able to glean it from from just the closings, but it, in fact, Dr. Mo had given Diana a piece of paper in 2016 after one of her visits, and it was a script for an EMG, uh, which is like a nerve test of of your legs to um, test the nerves, and she. Um, According to the record, she lost the paper and never went um, uh, to the to the EMG, and that was three months before her diagnosis. And her testimony was something to the effect of, "Well, um, I was working two jobs, which she was. I was really busy, and I had called neurology, the neurology department, on my own at that point, and asked." you know, to come in for an evaluation, because at that point, I was so worried that I didn't just want an EMG, I wanted to be seen by a doctor. And then she was given an appointment date that turned out to be three months down the line. So it it turns out that it wasn't even her appointment date ended up being after she actually got diagnosed, because it wasn't until she like fell down, her legs like gave out in like January 2017, that she just like, called and said like my legs gave out and they were like come in now and so like yeah i think that kind of like the sick they the jury saw the six percent but i i in closing pointed out that you know uh it's, it's remarkable i don't know if i said this exactly but it's remarkable how much focus they're putting on this time period between october of 2016 
in January of 2017. They want to they want to focus on this with a microscope and ignore the last five years of complaints. The last five years that she's coming over and over and over again, the back pain, this that and the other, and and like just ignoring it. They don't want to take an iota of responsibility for that. Uh, and ask yourselves why they're so hyper focused on this time period they want to take your eye off the ball or something like that but i yeah it was i think it was um i, I didn't run away from it because you don't want to do that with a bad fact but i think i said something like you know it's for you to hash out but you know here's all the reasons why it doesn't really doesn't really carry the day yeah yeah well, let's talk a little bit about how you put the uh, how you put the damages case together. Um, the you know, I mean, obviously, you know, partial paralysis, uh, incontinence, uh, uh, losing control of your bowels. I mean, sounds terrible, but but, but I guess t- talk a little bit about how you how you went about presenting the damages for for Diana. We called a uh, life care planner nurse who had actually examined her and gone and spent a day with her at her, at her apartment. It was a second story walk up and she was able to see, she like had to basically hoist herself up the steep staircase while carrying a rolly walker every day. And she had fallen in her house quite a bit or her apartment. Um, she had to use enemas to help uh, defecate. Um, she had bowel, bowel incontinence and, um, she had been catheterized for bladder incontinence. And I, so I had the nurse go through all those things and um, explain to the jury what that, what that is. And, and then uh, I had the experts explain, because it's not obvious to me, and uh, I don't think it's going to be obvious to the jury that, like, you know, your spinal cord controls all this stuff. So damage to that cord is like the circuitry board. You're not getting proper signals to everything else, and it's not getting better. Same way that if you don't breathe air for a long time, you, you can drown. I mean, you can have death of the cells. That happens in the spine, too. And um, and then I finished with her testimony, which was sort of, you know, she was not at all histrionic or dramatic. She was matter of fact, but I still had to pull that out of her. You could tell she didn't really want to talk about it. So I had to be delicate. But at the same time, I think I, I think I may have said too during the direct, and I apologize. I have to ask you about this. But it's important that we we know. Uh, can you tell us what it's like to have to use an enema? And you know, and I think the jury was rightfully feeling her shame, feeling her helplessness, and um, you know, I, I always think it helps when you have a client who's not like overly if anything she was like under like playing it right and and i think people really picked up on that because she's just a tough cookie yeah did you uh bring in any sort of uh you know what we call before and after witnesses people who who could talk about how she was before this and and or how she was afterwards or any family or anything like that didn't because she lived alone and there were like she had a cousin, for example, that was deposed, who was talking about how she was before and after. I was just worried that it was too much, like it was a kind of a softball and bias to have a cousin coming in. And she lived in New York City and and Diana was in Philly, so they weren't really seeing each other that much. 
I'm like, I don't really want to risk the bias thing or the cross on that because I think the records do the job for me. Um, so right. I, I just kind of, I just I, it was a strategic thing where I just decided to let, let her speak for herself. Yeah. Um, well, it, anyways, th this has been, um, you know, just a really great job, Tom. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm wondering as far as the experts, you know, we haven't really talked much about that. Was there any sort of, uh, expert testimony that you thought, uh, on one side or the other that you thought was, was, was uh, swaying for the jury? Well, they called as a defense expert, Dr. Uh, this guy named Dr. Dickey, who was the chair of neurosurgery at this school that I would never get into called Yale. Um, <laughs> but uh, he was really, I, I remember the night before, like, I'm going to cross this guy. Like, I don't know. Like, he's in, he's the chair of neurosurgery at Yale. I really was struggling with that. I'm like, I don't, he's going to beat me up if I try to go one-on-one -on -one with him again about, like, spinal arterial venous malformations. But then I remember, like, had a little cross outline. And um, during his direct, I realized that he was really overplaying his hand. And, you know, the defense lawyer was bringing him through the records. And every time there was something potentially bad or concerning, he would say, like, you know, yeah, but, you know, at this time she didn't have uh, gait disturbance. So yeah, she had some back pain and some tingling, but her gait was normal. Or yeah, but you know this, that, and the other. And I started realizing, like, wait, there's, there's, there are, there is evidence from different providers of all these things he's saying weren't there. And so I, my whole cross of him was pointing out what he didn't put in his report. Yeah, that was my entire cross, and it was obviously all the bad symptoms, all the concerning symptoms. I really just. I mean, I think he was a 90% defense guy, so that I got that out. Um, but it was really just, you told us on direct, you would have you would have been concerned if it, there were gate problems. Well, there were when she went to the physical therapist, weren't there? Because she was going to physical therapy for her arthritis, presumably. So there were these, and, 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 and it was just, well, you didn't put that in your report, did you? That was right. that every single time. That's the only thing I asked them. And I would just, and it was up to, and I brought the easel out. It was like 18 things. So yeah, I just, yeah. I don't think they believe, I, they just came off as like, yeah, he was on a mission. <laughs> yeah, I, I I should have mentioned that. Yeah, I, I thought the way you used the uh, the physical therapy records, at least in the opening and closing, I thought was was very effective because it allows you to sort of uh, fill in some of that, those gaps in the timeline and um and, and talk about how, you know, if the doctor had, you know, just been checking the physical therapy records, he would have seen, you know, there's these consistent complaints of pain, you know, consistent complaints of, um, I can't remember you, I, you wrote down, oh, the tightness, the, the, the weakness and tightness in the legs and the, and the, uh, in the, uh, uh, quadriceps and things like that. So I thought all that, uh, you know, was, was very effective and, and you're exactly right. I mean, that, that with a, with somebody, uh, who's, you know, got the credentials of a head of neurosurgery at Yale. It's best to hit them on what they didn't do or, you know, so absolutely. Yeah. It was, um, I was curious, I saw a reference to it in the closing, but I assume the same thing happened in opening because this was one of the, the more fun transcripts I've read in a while. And I think 
part of it obviously was the skill of of you, Tom, of course, but it was also it was nice and punchy. I mean, Steve and I get some long transcripts. <laughs> and you mean lawyers these, <laughs> Yeah. These were nice and punchy. And I, I saw a reference to the judge. It seemed kind of joking, some banter between you and the judge about uh, it seemed like maybe your rebuttal in closing or something like that. But did the judge run a pretty tight ship on how much time you guys could could have for opening and close? It was kind of normal, but he the judge was like really liked him. He was sort of like a he was sort of like a I'm I'm pretty animated in the courtroom. <laughs> oh, he was really like kind of like an older uncle that would sometimes be like, no, no, you know, but yeah. but, but but like secretly likes you like that if that makes any sense. But mm-hmm. you yeah. know, he was yeah, the rebuttal was I was really charged up during the rebuttal, which you couldn't you couldn't tell from reading it, but I, but one of the one of the, the things they tried to do was, you know, they had two sets of defense lawyers, one for Penn and one for Dr. Mo. And then the Penn doctors also represented Dr. D'Angelo Antonio. So there was sort of a conflict there. But Mo, Dr. Mo was getting beat up so bad that it turns out that you're not really supposed to do this, but the, the defense lawyer for Penn gave like a double closing like in, on behalf of Mo, even though she didn't represent I saw him. That. She didn't yeah. represent him. And, and she said something like, well, you know, uh, it was an act of God or something, or, or she got dealt a bad hand. And I mean, I remember kind of going off and closing, um, yeah. and pointing out like, you know, what more did she need to complain about for her to do something? I mean, and I think I said, like, according to the defense, she would have need to, needed to fall on the ground and flopped around like a fish. And been numb from head to toe for there to be an MRI done. And it was just the incredulity of it. Um, yeah. yeah. That, that I think the jury was rightfully uh, uh, displeased with it. But um, yeah. defense lawyers also, um, I don't know how much you saw this come through, but they ended up stepping in it. Um, as this, There was this thing with the software glitch defense, which was that neuro- neurological weakness thing where um they dr mo testified i didn't put neurological weakness next to um i didn't put weakness next to the neurological section i put it next to the constitutional section and there was a, a panel-wide software glitch that caused the term weakness to automatically and magically move to the neurological part of the record it wasn't neurological weakness mr bosworth you're wrong it was regular old weakness it's not neurological and it was the software glitch. We all see it all the time at Penn. It's totally pervasive. Well, I did massive discovery on that. I did, I served subpoenas on the on the electronic medical record company. I did a corporate designee dep of Penn to see if there were any complaints about this because they had an IT system that would like deal or receive any. There was nothing, nothing. And so I got pretrial admissions from. He from Penn that there were no documents that existed to corroborate this glitch. There, there was no evidence of it. It basically was made up. So I'm crossing the corporate designee at trial on this. Right on the witness stand, he blurts out, it was like the crescendo of my cross. And I'm like, and the fact of the matter is, sir, when you went searching for a single document to corroborate this, you found a total of zero. Answer. No, no, I actually was Mr. Young and I, that's the defense lawyer. We're looking at the the documents just this morning. Corroborate it, I, and I'm up there like, holy crap! I did 
here's a discovery on this. Are you going to be kidding me? I was furious, but I, you know, I didn't make a fuss right then and there, even though I could have gone to sidebar. I finished up and then on a break, I said, Judge, we need to talk. And I put it on the record. I said, the jury needs to be instructed. I've never seen these. And then all of a sudden, the defense lawyer came over, slapped these documents on my desk in the middle of trial that were like, you know, screenshots of like the, the software program. And so remember that now the jury's heard it from this guy that there are documents, I mean, I, documents that corroborate the defense. And I'm left with like, how do I deal with this? And so judge was like, well, I'm not going to instruct the jury now. But like, he wasn't thrilled about it either. He's like, I'm, you know, I'm going to figure I might, do, I might instruct them later. We'll see. Um, so then the next witness was the witness who verified the written discovery responses said that Penn didn't have any evidence of the software glitch. And I said, Judge, before we call this Dr. Quinn, I just want to be clear that he's not going to do the same thing that Mr. Maurer just did, which is talk, say that there's these documents that he and Mr. Young talked about that I've never seen and they don't actually corroborate it. And the defense lawyer confirmed on the record, no, I've talked to him. He's not going to do that. Cross-exam starts. da 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 and uh, sir, there, when you went searching for any records to corroborate this, you couldn't find any, could you? Oh, well, Mr. Young and I were just looking at the, uh, the rec. He did it. And um, at that point, we went to sidebar and the jury went out the room and I, I was like, judge was not happy. And what happened, sorry for the long story, but this is yeah. kind, of, kind of hilarious at the end of it. So at the end of trial, I was asking for an adverse inference instruction that they had withheld um, evidence uh, that they didn't produce. And they were ordered to produce it because I had a court order for discovery and um, and that uh, the jury should be you know, seeking an adverse inference that, that the documents were damaging or, or whatever. And um, the defense's argument was it was it was really hilarious. Judge, basically, our witnesses were not telling the truth. Those documents don't corroborate the software glitch defense. So we were not in the wrong back in discovery when we responded and told Mr. Bosworth we don't have anything because they don't. And I said, that's great. I agree they don't. But the juries, all they have heard, and they haven't seen the documents because the judge said they're not coming in. All they've heard are there's these documents that back it up. So the judge did was he basically said, you know, to the defense, I'm going to give the adverse inference instruction. And I think I said, Judge, well, other than that, I propose maybe a stipulation um, that the defense lawyer read to the jury that if they're if they're telling you that these things don't, these documents don't corroborate it, let me just do a stip to that effect. <laughs> so they, I think, thinking it was a better deal for them than an adverse inference instruction, agreed to the stip, even though the stip was much worse because the trial ended the defense lawyer, but the judge saying, well, the last piece of evidence is the defense lawyer has something that they'd like to read into evidence. This is evidence for you to consider. And she stands up and the jury with a, doc, with, a, with, a, with a document and says, you heard Mr. Maurer and Dr. Quinn testify that you know, these documents corroborate the software glitch. There are no documents that corroborate the software glitch. Wow. Like they just like basically like, I, my two, those two witnesses, uh, they are just lied to you. Thank you. And, and then, then they, in closing, called the whole glitch irrelevant. And they had been harping on the thing for three weeks. So you can imagine what I did with that and rebuttal. So it, 
was, yeah. was fun. I'm not going to lie. It was fun. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's great work. Good stuff. Um, well, listen, Tom, we really appreciate your time and, uh, and, and you've, you've done a great job. Uh, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about uh, Diana Melendez versus uh, Dr. G. Mo that was tried in September of 2022 uh, in Philadelphia. And our guest has been Tom Bosworth of Bosworth Law. And uh, and you can look him up at TomBosworthLaw.com. And by the way, the verdict, just to remind everybody, was $19,665,312. Um, Tom, is there anything else that uh, you want to make sure our listeners know about uh, this trial that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Oh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you both. It was, it's been fun. Yeah, no, it was, it was great and great job. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, uh, it's been, uh, it's been uh, fascinating. Yeah. Fun, fun transcripts, fun, punchy transcripts, scripts would, would read again. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Wait, and, and, and I just want to make sure, Yvonne, when are you going to read those again? Um, I mean, I would. You're right, right. I didn't say I will. Yeah, that's you have right. So much, you have so much free time, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I don't do a lot of reading. No, re- um, truly great work, Tom. And I, yeah, um, uh, we're just kidding there. The, but um, great work and, uh, and, and great lawyering. So, um, but uh, and thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. It really means a lot to me, Steve, and the Great Trials podcast team. And we have a few people we want to thank. Right, Steve? That's right. Definitely thank our sponsors, uh, Digital Law Marketing. And you can go to digitallawmarketing.com. Who's next to And then we've got Legal Technology Services, or LTS. And you can look them up at legaltechservice.com. And then, of course, we don't want to forget Raz and podonthego.com. Yes. And uh, tell, tell Raz we sent you, but um, he is our trusty producer and does great work. So uh, feel free to reach out to him if you need help with your podcast. Hey, we should also thank our law partners because uh, uh, our firm has been very supportive. Uh, and that's Harris Lowry Mann. And if you want to look us up, it's at hlmlawfirm.com. And then, of course, we always want you to rate and review us and give a great review if you feel that that's uh, if that's how you feel. Um, And you can go on and do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening, guys.